Our reading today is taken again from Habakkuk chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through to 13 once more. Habakkuk chapter 3, let's hear the word of the Lord, reading, of course, from the authorized version. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigeonoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea, that thou did ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes. Even thy word, Selah, thou did cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou did march through the land in indignation. Thou did thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now this morning... As we continue our series of expository studies in the book of Habakkuk, we're turning our attention to Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 4. And my theme's entitled, The Biblical Postponement of True Revival. Now, this is my fourth message on the theme of revival. We've been thinking about a real, true, genuine revival. And we've discovered that Habakkuk, he is passionate about real revival, despite his spiritual struggles in this day. He is praying about real revival. That's what Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 is all about at this time. It's a prayer wrenched from the depth of his heart. It's uh, from the innermost being of his soul. His life is poured out in his prayer. 
He believes in the seven principles that are main outstanding features or, or the marks of true revival. Here's what he's looking for, the exaltation of the Savior. Verse 3 of Habakkuk 3, God came down from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. And then in verse 13, it mentions thine anointed, a clear reference to Jesus Christ. True revival remembers not man-centered, it is Christ-centered. It is a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit that always leads to the exaltation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's a hunger for Christ. There's an honoring of Christ. There's a hearing of Christ. The second mark was the exposure of sin. Verse 13 talks about the heart, the house of the wicked. Thirdly, there was the exposition of the scriptures. It is mentioned here in this third chapter in verse 9, even thy word is sealed. And then there was the encouragement of the saints, um, the history of what God did in Egypt and the Exodus, and, and the history of what God did in the days of Joshua, how even the sun and moon stood, stood, stood still, and the, the history of what God was going to do to Babylon. He came down for his people. You've got to think of the evangelization of lost souls. And then the exhortation to a deeper spirituality. And seventhly, the emphasis on God's sovereignty. His ways are everlasting. In other words, true revival is all of God and only of God. And here's the evidence and the signs of a real true revival. A sevenfold test of every revival. Now today, I want us to think of this theme, the biblical postponement of revival, or to put it in the words of Ravenhill, why does revival tarry? Now it's been great to read of revivals, books like Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray, The Log College by Archibald Alexander, a classic account of revival in 1741, the United States of America and Massachusetts. We've got to think about the book entitled A Year of Grace by William Gibson, Presbyterian minister in 1859, the history of um, revival here in Northern Ireland. And then the late Dr. Paisley's book, The History of the 59 Revival here in Northern Ireland. Wonderful soul-stirring stuff. As one reads this material, it inevitably leads us to think and to ask the question, why are we not in revival now? Why is the church in the Northern Ireland, in the United Kingdom, not experiencing a sovereign move of the Holy Ghost in our day and generation? See, the United Kingdom and any of its four regions, Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland, we have not had a mighty move of the Holy Ghost in the past 70 years. That's almost two generations. Why? Look at our day. The church is facing and experiencing bleak and barren times. It's a day of deepening apostasy and religious declension. True conversions are few and rare. There's a spirit of coldness and carelessness among many of us that profess to love the Lord. There's a spirit of worldliness that has crept in. Sadly, even some professing Christian men who profess to love the Lord have a deeper love of self, not a deeper love for Christ and the things of God. The church of Jesus Christ is largely ignored in society. She is powerless 
as well as prayerlessness. Her, her voice has not been heeded or heard. What we think of the encroachment of modernism and liberalism and its impact upon the church ministry. Many in the pulpit, sadly many in the pew, have a deep sense of discouragement and a deep sense of anxiety and many are despairing for the future and they're asking such questions. How are we going to survive? And many are worried and fearful individually and worried and fearful collectively for the future of the church. Now all of that I've said stands in stark contrast to the days of great revival in the United Kingdom as well as in the United States of America. We only have to think of what happened here in 1625 at the Six Mile Water. 1859, 1920s under the Reverend W.P. Nicholson. We think back to these times. And as we think upon them, a sovereign move and work of God by his Holy Spirit, we as believers rightly ask the question that Leonard Ravenhill asked and wrote a book on, why does revival tarry? Why does God postpone revival now? Why are we not enjoying God's presence and power now? Is there an answer? Well, Habakkuk had the answer. Habakkuk chapter 3 and 4. Look at the words at the end of verse 4. Think of what it says. And there was the hiding of his power. Think of that. The Lord was present in Habakkuk's day. But he withheld his power. He withheld the conscious reality of it. He, he, he hid the outworking of his power. That's exactly, of course, what the prophet Hosea said. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their fence and seek my face and their affliction. They will seek me early. Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. Here is why we're not seeing the gospel sweep through Northern Ireland in the way that it once did. Here is why we're in such a poor state spiritually. Here is why there's so little real spiritual power in the church of God. Here's why the church is so weak to withstand the floods of sin and wickedness that has invaded the church. There is the hiding of God's power. And there was the hiding of his power. I put it to you, that is the biblical postponement of real, true revival. There's the answer as to why revival tarries. There's the hiding of God's power. Now, that's what I want us to think of today. I want you to think firstly of the reasons considered for the hiding of God's power. As I thought of this point, I wanted to look at it in a twofold manner. I want us to look at it negatively, and I want us to look at it positively. You see, there's a number of wrong answers to the question as to why revival tarries or why there's a biblical postponement of true revival. These are, of course, man-made answers. And I want to say this morning, if you're listening, they're, they're plainly and clearly wrong. They're off the flesh. The devil's at the back of it. Here's one of the 
answers that men give to the question why revival tarries, God has lost his ability and power. I want to tell you that's a lie. Men will tell you today that God is dead. That there's no God who intervenes in world affairs. No God who intervenes in the lives of men. No God who works and moves and answers to prayer today. That's a lie of the devil. I want to tell you the living and the true God. The God who's the maker of heaven and earth. The God of the Bible is still as powerful as ever he was. And for men to say, well, God blessed us in the past in revival, but he cannot now because he's no longer able to. Well, that's a lie. Of course, if we trace the biblical evidence of God's ability, using the words of the scriptures, he is able which is a powerful study in itself. And there's many, many references that teach us that God is all-powerful. Like Hebrews chapter 7 and 25, Jude 24, 2 Timothy 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13, Ephesians 3 and 20, uh, Romans 11, 23, James 4 and 12. It tells us what God is able to do. So we have to say that this is the wrong answer. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He said, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. God never changes. God never grows weary. And true revival tarries not because God is unable or because God is impotent, because God is all-powerful, always was and always is and always will be. Here's another wrong answer. The world is getting better. We would have to laugh at this if it wasn't serious. The world is more loving and more caring and more understanding and more peaceable than ever it was. That's another lie from the devil. Surely we would have to confess that we have seen for our own selves in the past few decades, never mind the past 70 years, we've seen an explosion of the wickedness of hell and we've seen an explosion of lawlessness in the times in which we live. Surely the times in which we live bear testimony that the world is not getting better, it's getting worse. Here's another wrong answer. The world is too depraved and too bad now for God to work. Could I take you back and time to the Garden of Eden, the very first sin, the fall of our first parents and human sinfulness? Can I take you into their home? You've got the first murder, the first family fallout. You've got lies and cover up. You have rebellion against God. You've got the rejection of the blood sacrifice of, uh, of God by Cain. And what did it lead to? It led to some horrendous times of great wickedness and evil. The days of Noah, the days of Lot, the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, when you think of the history of the world from its beginning, tracing it out of Eden with the fall of man and sin and human depravity, there's been times of great, deep depravity and wickedness. And yet in such a time, God has been pleased to move and work. The first gospel promise was uttered outside of Eden, Genesis 3.15. Then think about the salvation of Noah and his family in the ark. 
Think of the rescue of Lot from Sodom. You see, the Bible teaches, here's a great principle, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. God wonderfully has moved in dark and depraved times before in the world's history. This world's history is a history of God's acts in the past and in the present. We can think how he has revived his church in biblical times, Old and New Testament. How God has revived his church even in our times and in our generation. We've got to think of 1625, 1859-1920s here in Northern Ireland in particular. And I want to tell you there's not a demon or devil in hell that can stop a sovereign God working according to his purpose. This answer doesn't explain why revival tarries. It's a wrong answer. The world is not getting better. The world is not too depraved and bad now for God to work. Here's another wrong answer. The church is in the last days. Some preachers preach that there was to be no revival in the last days. I believe that's a wrong answer. I believe it's another lie. Some men teach that God has no plan for revival in the last days. It's true that men have got worse and worse. It's true that the love of many have waxed cold. It is true that in a time to come, Antichrist, the final Antichrist, will appear. It is true there's going to be a great apostasy, and we're already seeing that taking place before our eyes. There's going to be a great departure from the faith once delivered on the saints. But to follow on from that and say God has no plan for revival in the last days, while it sounds plausible, while it sounds good and reasonable, I want to tell you it must be refuted. Why? Because it's a wrong answer. Let me ask the question, when did the last days begin? When did they start? Well, you see, we've got to let the Bible speak. We've got to let the Bible answer. And the Bible has an answer. And over there in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, this is what we read. God who at sundry times and in divers manners in time past spake unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. When did the last days begin? And the answer is they began in the first advent of Jesus Christ. And was there any revival after the advent of Jesus Christ? We've got to think of Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit and the conversion of 3,000 souls and, and many other souls beside. You've also got to think of what's written in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17, we read uh, these words, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And when do the last days come to an end? They come to an end at the second advent in Jesus Christ, coming back to this earth in power and glory to set up his millennial reign. So that's another wrong answer. 
It's wrong to say the church is in the last days, so there'll be no revival in the last days. Here's another wrong answer that men purport. The devil is in control of this world, and he's too strong and powerful for God. Now, it is true the devil is a strong and powerful enemy in the spiritual world. It is true he's an army of demons at his command. It's true that he can appear as a roaring lion at times, also appear as a subtle serpent, also appear as an angel of light. It is true he's like a strong man, armed that keepeth his goods in peace. But I want to tell you, the devil is not omnipotent. The devil is not all-powerful. The devil is not God. The devil to Jesus must buy. Isn't this what uh, Paul taught uh, the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2? Remember what he says there in the verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. Listen to verse 10. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord through the glory of God the Father. That includes the devil. That includes every minion of hell. Here's another wrong answer. The gospel message is out of date. It is no longer relevant for the 21st century. You see, there is a call today for a new and different message coming forth from the church. We're told that the church of Jesus Christ needs more than a mere work of the Holy Spirit. We're told that true revival won't meet the need of the 21st century. It's a lie. It's from the pit of hell. The devil's at the back of it. Men are looking to the satanic world. They're looking to science and the scientists. They're, they're, they're looking to space, but they've forgotten something that's fundamental, that Jesus Christ is the answer to every question of man. And Jesus Christ is the end of every man's spiritual quest. Remember John 14, verse 6. Jesus saith, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Let's remember what true revival is. It's a sovereign work of God by his Holy Spirit and quickening and enlivening men to his person, his presence, and his power. Surely we need a fresh vision of God's holiness, a fresh vision of the need of the Savior, a fresh vision of our own sin. Uh, we, we need our hearts to be brought to bear in such a way that we hunger and hanker after him, that we long to hear him. See, what the Holy Spirit does in saving one soul, in revival, he magnifies that and multiplies that thousands of times. That's what true revival is. And these answers that men give are all the wrong answers. Now, now you think of the um, reason considered for the hiding of his part. If these are the wrong answers, then, then let's think of a positive answer. Let's think of a, a positive reasoning. Why the hiding of his power? The answer is sublime. But it's very simple. And I can sum it up in one little word that's got three letters that even the children will understand. And it's the word this. Sin. That's the word. S-I-N. In Isaiah 59 and verse 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. Neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. 
and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Do you see that? That's what the Bible teaches. The sins of God's people. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Now we're not talking about maybes here. I'm not talking about if there is something in your life or mine. All of us need a heart examination before the Lord. We need to pray, Lord, search me. And we need to accept the fact that we're guilty of spiritual adultery and spiritual idolatry. There's three kinds of adultery in the Bible. There's physical adultery. There's mental adultery where we entertain thoughts in our mind and we are covetous and and lustful. And then there's spiritual adultery. You think of us as professing children of God. We profess to love the Lord. We do love the Lord. But not love the Lord only. We don't love the Lord wholly. We are unfaithful in our profession of love to him. Because we don't live only and wholly for him. We don't love him as we ought. We're not loyal to him as we ought. And we don't have a yearning to be like him as we ought. Oh, isn't not true how little we love him? Is there not a love for self in our hearts and minds? Is there not a love for money? A love for success? A love for power and prestige? A love for position in the house of God? Is there not a love for getting our own way, whether it's in a Kirk session meeting or a committee meeting? Are, are we not guilty of being selfish and, and thoughtlessness toward others, where we put ourselves first but not, not others? We don't put the Lord first. Matthew 6 and 33 says, That we're to seek the Lord. We're to put the Lord first. And that's important. We're not to put ourselves first. Seek ye first what? The kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. Three times the uh, Lord Jesus asked Peter in John 21 verse 15. Lovest thou me more than these? And Peter had to confess that his love for the Lord wasn't what it ought to be. Yes, he could say, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he did, but it was a faint and feeble reflection of the commandment that said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. We also need to accept the fact that we're guilty of spiritual worldliness. Remember what? It says in 1 John chapter 2, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's what worldliness is. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. 
God's people living and acting just like the unbeliever, like the ungodly, like the man of the world, adopting the world's minds, adopting the world's standards, adopting the world's ways. And of course, this is contrary to the teaching of the New Testament. You think of the Apostle Paul and what he says there in the book of Colossians, in um, uh, Colossians uh, chapter 3 and in the verse uh, 1 and 2. What does he exhort us to do? He said this, Colossians 3, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, for Christ sitteth in the right hand of God. Set your affections in things above, not on things of the earth, for ye are dead. There's the argument. And your life is hid with Christ in God. But we have substituted that for organizations, for advertising instead of agonizing. We've been influenced by the media. And we such have a, a spiritually world mindset that, that's contrary to the word of God. We should accept also the fact that we've tolerated sin in our lives, not just outward sins, but inwardly in the heart and in the mind. Sins of the spirit and sins of the flesh. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul talked about there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and in the verse 1? Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You think of the petty things that's in the hearts and lives of God's people, the bitternesses, the fallouts, the little upsets, the non-forgiving spirit, where we don't even feel ashamed or we feel a blush. We, we think to ourselves, I, I don't get mad, I, I get even. And we're full of jealousy and envy towards God's people. These are the little foxes that spoil the vine. We should also accept that we have a coldness and hardness toward the things of God. We have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude today to the house of God, the word of God, the day of God, and even the Christ of God. I have to confess this morning, I'm not trying to guilt you. But we've got a face. It's not maybe there's sin in my heart and life. It's not that I don't know what the sin is in my heart and life. Because it's not unknown sin. We know them. The Lord knows them. I know my own sins. And we should come to the Lord and say, Lord, I know my heart. Lord, I know my sin, my own backsliding, the very things that's grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And our greatest need is to get alone with God and to hunger and desire for him, not just have our devotions in the morning. That's good and that's important and we encourage that. But getting alone with God and waiting in him. Let's not blame the devil. Let's not blame the world. Let's not blame other believers and feel a sense of pride in ourselves. For we have no reason to be proud, individually or collectively. It's good that we pray. It's good that we read our Bible and gather in the house of God and attend the prayer meeting. But you know what's possible? That we do all those things and allow that to be a cloak to cover up our hearts. That we've really departed from the Lord. That we don't love him as we ought. We've no real time for him. We've no real fear of him. We've no deep hatred for sin. We've no sense that the Lord is withholding his, his presence or hiding his power. And we're not concerned. The reason considered for the hiding of his power. That's just the first point this morning. 
The second point is this. The remedy considered for the hiding of God's power. And there is a remedy, biblically based. And that's why I entitled the message, The Biblical Postponement of True Revival. You see, we must accept, according to the scriptures, we have grieved and quenched the Spirit of God. That that we have indeed sinned against the Lord in this way and many other ways beside. Over there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19, it says, Quench not the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 19. I would encourage you to think of those words. What does the word quench mean? It means to put out the flame. Isn't that what we have done? We've put out the flame of the Spirit of God in our hearts and lives. Oh, we're still born of the Spirit. We're we're indwelt by the Spirit. But we're grieving and quenching and vexing the Spirit so that our Christian life is is smoldering and, and smoking just like a fire that's been put out. The Spirit of God is like a flame. Remember, it's his work to inflame and enliven his church. He revives his church so that he can reveal Christ to us. But we've got to accept that sin quenches and grieves and vexes the Holy Spirit. And when we sin in anger, when we lose our temper, when we display an unholy temper, and I confess I have a problem in that area, we we think of the sins of omission, the sins of commission, things that we do, things that we don't do. Uh, things that we leave out, things that we neglect, the word of God and prayer and, uh, and encouraging God's people. Are we not told in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. But that's what we do. We grieve the Spirit, we vex him, we, we quench his working. There, there's a, a hankering after sin, there's a hiding of sin, there's a harboring after sin. What puts out the fire? One way you could put out a fire is using the earth, throwing a pile of dirt on it. And isn't it possible to quench the Holy Ghost? Thinking of earthly things. We need to face up to this. We need to admit this. We need to accept this. We need to be honest before God. We need to examine our hearts. We need to take him at his word. We need to be thinking of what God's will is for us. We need to be thinking of how this impacts upon the work of God and the worship of the Lord. We need to not only accept that we've sinned against the Lord, but we need to confess the Lord has withdrawn himself from us for a time. That he's withholding his presence, withholding his power. Thankfully, the Lord hasn't left us completely. Thankfully, he hasn't forsaken us once and for all. Thankfully, he hasn't withdrawn all help and every blessing. But he has left us without the consciousness of his divine presence and the consciousness of his power. God's presence and power has been greatly curtailed. Why? Because God has hidden himself. God has hidden his face. If you think of the words in Psalm um, 13 and in the verse 1. It was the psalmist that asked the question in Psalm 13, verse 1. Think of these words. Let me read them to you. They'll come up on the screen. How long will thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long will thou hide thy face from me? In Micah, chapter 2, and in the verse 7, we read, 
Oh, thou that are named of the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? See, the the thought is, is the spirit of the Lord curtailed? Is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Think of Samson in Judges 16 verse 20. Think of him and his love for Delilah. Think of him lying in her lap and telling him the truth about the cutting of his hair. And then she said, Samson, the Philistines be upon thee. He went out at other times, wished not that the Lord had departed. He had played fast and loose with the Spirit of God. I think of Song of Solomon, chapter 5 and verse 6. The beloved comes knocking in the door. But, but where is the bride? Well, she's in bed. She's undressed for the evening. She has put her slippers off her feet. She has put cream in her hands and her face. But he knocks, she she has no desire to get out of bed and open the door for him. She has no desire for him. And then when she discovers then, she gets out of bed and goes to the door, the beloved has withdrawn himself. If we think of Revelation chapter 3, the church of the Laodiceans, what do we read there in Revelation chapter 3 and in the verse 17? We, We read this about the church of the Laodiceans. Notice it's called after them. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with thy salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You see, in Laodicea, the church was guilty of a lukewarmness. In Laodicea itself, they had piped uh, water from the various springs into the city, and some of the hot water that was piped in uh, turned lukewarm as it was being piped in. And um, that was true of the cold water, but it was also true of the hot water. And it became known as a lukewarm city. And, and, and Paul used that as an illustration. That's what they were like. You were lukewarm, and you're saying you're in need of nothing. And and where's Christ? He's on the outside. Revelation 3 and 20. It's not a message to the unconverted. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will sup with him and and he with me. It has to do with Christ and and the church. Christ is on the outside. You think of one of the greatest churches in the New Testament was the church of Ephesus. And yet, where is that church today? You'll not find it anywhere in Asia Minor. Remember what the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2? He said this in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. They were encouraged to pray about abounding in the love of God. And 40 years later, that love was gone. And the Lord blew out the candle. The Lord snuffed out the light. The Lord was gone from outside. They had their meetings. They had their singing, their readings of the Bible. They had their prayer meetings. But they too were saying, we have need of nothing. The Lord withdrew until eventually the light went out. You think of Mary and Joseph, supposing Christ to be in the company for a day's journey. But Christ was not there. He was not in their midst. And we need to confess that. If the Lord's not in our midst, then at least go to the Lord and say, Lord, we miss you. We want you to come back. 
I want you to think not only of the reasons considered for the hiding of God's power and the remedy for the hiding of God's power. We need to uh, accept that we have sinned. We need to confess that the Lord has withdrawn himself. And we need to repent and get right with the Lord. Do we notice that the Lord is missing? Is there a loss of powerlessness? Is the church not facing a crisis? Do we not need to repent and cry out to the Lord to have mercy upon us? Let me close this morning the response considered for the hiding of his power. What did Habakkuk do? Well, if you link it up in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Here's what he did. He resorted to using the weapon of prayer. He knew the Lord was willing. He knew the Lord was able to revive his work. So he was waiting on the Lord and he prayed, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Do you know I link this up with that tremendous chapter there in Isaiah chapter 59? Think of the words in verse 16. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. You think of that. Here's the Lord wondering that his people weren't praying and crying out to him. True prayer is the great secret of any true real revival. Nothing happens without prayer. It's like a secret key. But that's part of the problem. We have forgotten this. And therefore we're not having an effect on the unconverted. And therefore, the coldness and the worldliness in God's people's hearts and lives and in my heart and life is having no effect. Remember what Solomon counseled the people in his day. Second Chronicles chapter 7. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. Can this not be illustrated time and time again in the Bible? Do we not ignore the prayer meeting at our peril? We long for personal revival. But it's not going to happen without prayer and seeking the face of God. Leonard Ravenhill talks about fire begetting fire. And fire, of course, when it's ignited, begins to spread and can spread quickly. And oh, that we long for a fresh infilling of the Holy Ghost. The Bible commands us, be not drunk with wine, we're in his excess, but be filled with the Spirit. It was Micah said, Micah 3 and verse 8, I am full of power by the Spirit of God. We need the Holy Spirit. And is it not written, and with this I finish, the Lord Jesus in Luke 13, uh, talked about this fact. He said these words, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, Luke 11 and 13, How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And here's the response for the hiding of his power. We need to pray to God that he will return, that he'll revive his work, but that he will pour out the Spirit of the Holy Ghost upon us, that he will baptize us again with Pentecostal power. Here's the biblical postponement for revival. 
there's reasons to be considered. We've considered the wrong answers. We've looked at the right answer. And here's the remedy. We need to accept our sin and confess it before the Lord and repent and get right with him. And here's our response in getting right with God and getting alone. The response ought to be, Lord, make me an intercessor. Lord, let me be a prayer warrior. Don't wonder that I'm missing from the prayer meeting. I'll give myself to prayer. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to you this morning.